0: Thank you so much for joining. This is Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast, and today I am so excited because I have William Porter. He is the author of Alcohol Explained, and this book was recommended to me by a bunch of readers, actually, and I I picked it up and I read it and have been, I I mean, Will, I've been blown away by the caliber of research and study and content and how well you logically articulate alcohol I mean it truly is alcohol explained it's it's phenomenal and I'm just thrilled to talk to you today about it and so I have a bunch of questions but I'd love to just start with like your personal story where where did this come from um
1: I suppose well starting at the beginning I mean I started drinking and smoking when I was about 14 um and that was back at sort of beginning of the 90s Um, And I quite quickly came across Alan Carr's book on stopping smoking. Um, And I didn't stop smoking immediately. I had to read read it quite a few times before I finally stopped. I was quite blown away by the way he looked at things and analysed things. So I stopped smoking um, around, I think I finally stopped around the age of when I got back from university. So I was about 21 or so, but I continued drinking. Um, And as per most people, it just got heavier and heavier and more and more out of hand. Um, And at one point I was in the reserve battalion, of the parachute regiment and served out in Iraq. So that was kind of a, I mean, my drinking was getting more and more, but that, as you can imagine, was probably a quite a big accelerator in many ways. So coming out the back end of that, um, I picked up some fairly abysmal drinking habits. Um, and that just sort of continued and things just got more and more out of hand. So eventually it came to the point where you have to do something about it. Um, and I stopped drinking three and a bit years ago. I think February 18 will be my fourth year not drinking. Great. So,
0: And so what... Was it the research first or was it the decision and then the research to solidify the decision or no
1: To, to, to be honest it all it it was a very very long process because I, I remember being at university and suffering really bad insomnia when I was drinking um, and I I just I remember going down the um, I was at Cardiff University and I went down the um, Medical library and started reading bits and pieces of that to try and work out what had happened. So really for the 25 years or so I was drinking it was like an ongoing process of just research I didn't at any point sit down and think right I'm going to research it it was just as things dawned on me I'd sort of read into it and you know you pick up magazines or find articles that would be of interest so it was kind of it was quite a few years of just accumulating knowledge Um, and then I eventually stopped and I probably had 80% of the information that's now in Alcohol Explained and on the website Um, But when I actually sat down to write, I don't know if you found the same, but you've got an idea and you think you know it But when you actually sit down to write something you realize there are holes in it So you sort of fill in those gaps. So actually writing the book was really useful just for me personally as well Because I think it even though I stopped drinking at that point It kind of helped to finalize the journey for me in many ways.
0: Yeah, yeah uh, your book. I mean I have no interest in drinking anymore, but just reading your book, it makes alcohol literally um, kind of impalatable. Like it, it, reading the truth about how this works and, and what it does. And I think one of the most amazing things about your book is as a drinker, we have so many questions and we don't often allow ourselves too much time, But but it is weird. We start to wonder like, well, that's so weird. Why am I awake at three in the morning every morning? Why can't I control this when I go out and set out to have two drinks? Why do I end up having 10? You know, what, what is happening? And we ask these questions, but the great thing about what you've done is you went and you've answered them all. And in such a thoughtful, logical way, like it is amazing to me the caliber of and and if you have not read this book it's alcohol explained by William Porter go get it buy it and read it because it is unreal the caliber of research and thought that's gone into it and I think you know you must have a background that in academia or something because how you've articulated these things but there's a bunch of these questions that I kind of want to ask you specifically about and um you touched on this insomnia thing and the first one is this relationship between alcohol and sleep and as a new mom I've just had you know a a baby and so I'm, I'm sort of sleep deprived anyways and I can really relate to yeah, this idea yeah. of how you know all of a sudden you find yourself in tears for no good reason or or something's happening and and Ooh. so reading about this relationship of alcohol and sleep I mean can you just like uncover that for us
1: yeah the the, the research on it shows you know, to cut to the chase there's a lot we don't know about sleep Um, but what seems to be the case is there's two different types of sleep. There's deep sleep and there's REM sleep. Um, And we don't really know entirely what both of them do, but one of the tests, I think it was with lab rats, found that if you deprive them of REM sleep, they're dead within a few weeks. So poor old lab rats getting the short end of the stick as usual. Um, But what alcohol does, it disrupts your normal sleep pattern. And I think, although we don't know much about sleep, what we do know is the naturally occurring sleep patterns are the best for us and alcoholic upsets it in that it puts us into deep sleep for the first five hours but with no REM sleep so you're not getting the right sleep pattern and then for the remainder after the five hours you can't go into deep sleep so your sleep patterns are completely out of sync and that's why um, even if you manage to sleep eight hours or ten hours or whatever after drinking you wake up feeling tired all the time you never get a proper nice sleep. Um, And that's what the research has shown, and I think that actually ties in fairly well with what we know about the brain producing stimulants to counteract the alcohol, because the alcohol starts to be outbalanced by the stimulants after about five hours. So when you understand that aspect, it does sort of make sense that you would be in deep sleep for the first five hours or so, and then you can't go into deep sleep afterwards as the stimulants start to outbalance it. Um, and that's why, and again, I think I say it in the book, but quite often you hear people say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not hungover, I'm just a bit tired, but right. they're hungover. It's the effect of the drinking has caused them to not be able to sleep properly, um, and then they're tired the next day.
0: And so there's so many things there. there. There's this, I mean, in my experience, I felt like I needed alcohol to go to sleep. At this point in my Mm. life and I think that's probably true for a lot of people you feel like you actually need it to go to sleep and so sure enough I would drink and it would put me out and then Mm. at 3 in the morning I was like wide-eyed bolt upright it was just like oh my gosh I'm so awake and so those Mm. you know and I would I'd go to bed around 11 so this five hour it really makes a lot of sense and then so what you're saying is I didn't actually get any REM sleep during that phase once no, that's like... right. Yeah,
1: those yeah those four or five hours weren't proper sleep anyway, so you didn't get RE, any REM sleep during that phase. So, yeah, exactly. That's it. And then yeah. can you
0: talk a bit about then what, what happens progressively with that?
1: Well, it depends where you go with it. I mean, if you're continuously drinking, you're drinking more and more. So when you're waking up at 3 in the morning, you'll become increasingly more awake and increasingly more worried. The mistake I made was... At one point, I was reading, I think it's in It by Stephen King, and one of the characters keeps some beer in the fridge for in the middle of the night when he wakes up with a hangover to drink it to go back to sleep. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a fantastic idea. Um, and the first time, it worked fairly well in that you wake up, again, like you say, you're wide awake, worrying about things, and you have a drink, and you go straight back to sleep. But the problem is, you then build up the tolerance for night drinking So what turns out to be a quick drink in the middle of the night and then back to sleep turns into more and more and more drinking. And eventually you're sitting there drinking your equivalent amount that you were drinking the night before, you know, like seven or eight drinks or whatever. Um, And I think that's where you start getting serious problems then, because then you're getting into the habit of waking up and drinking as soon as you're awake. Um, And of course, the stimulants created by the brain, the brain will create them in anticipation as well. So if you get used to drinking until 11, sleeping till three, and then drinking onwards, your brain's then creating more stimulants ready for three o'clock when you start drinking again. So, so that's the, <laughs> the obvious conclusion, however you follow it through, is just heavier and heavier drinking.
0: Right, right. And I, I, I really want to talk about um, that idea too. So backing up just a bit, the stimulants, can you go into that a bit? So, you know, you're talking about Obviously, alcohol is a depressant, and then something yeah. happens inside you to counteract the depressant. Yeah, can you give yeah. us a
1: detail? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned it is, which is the starting point is homeostasis. So it's just to understand at a very basic level that the brain's phenomenally complicated, but it has its own array of drugs and hormones and all the rest of it that it controls the body with, and it's a very, very fine balance. Um, and when you mention obviously alcohol being a depressant we're talking now in its chemical sense as in something that inhibits or reduces nerve activity um, so you've got this very finely balanced machine which is a human brain working fine and then you shove a load of depressant into it so the brain seeks to counteract it by reduce, producing stimulants um, there's been quite a few studies showing numerous different stimulants created when you drink alcohol um, so that's basically the overriding structure of it. But the brain has a limited supply of these drugs and hormones, but if it's continually using them up, it will create release more of them. So over time, we become more and more, well, the brain becomes more and more proficient at creating these stress hormones and drugs and releasing them to counteract the alcohol. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think it takes so long to become an alcoholic because it's reliant on this process that the brain is going through. Um, but that also explains the whole concept of tolerance. I think everyone's fairly happy that you build up tolerance to alcohol, but not many people have stopped and thought, what is a tolerance to alcohol? You know, if you can take... A hypothetical person who has been drinking for years and someone exactly the same person who hasn't drunk for years one of them will be able to put away two three bottles of wine or whatever and the other one would be probably dead drinking that um so it's that is the physical difference it's the brain's ability to counteract the depressive effects of the alcohol and obviously that just becomes more and more extreme as the drinking years go on
0: it's really interesting because i had always assumed there was a link between alcohol and depression because I was diagnosed with depression and was on three different antidepressants and I was a heavy drinker. Um, About a year after I stopped drinking, I actually did what's called a cortisol spit test. So I spit in vials and I had them sent off to the lab because I would wake up um, and and I'd have kind of this adrenal rush and Mm. in the mornings. And so um, what had happened was that I had almost broken my ability to naturally produce adrenaline and so in the mornings my Uh, adrenaline had spiked and by the afternoons my adrenaline was far lower than it should have been and you know i had i've been on this kind of holistic plan and i've really come a long ways in fixing that issue but it was a precursor to thyroid issues and all sorts of things and certainly the doctor was like yes this this is from drinking i mean adrenaline is one of these stimulants that comes in as a result of drinking. And this, um, one of the things that I'm really keen to talk to you about is you talk a lot in your book about this natural progression. Because so often in society, we're sitting here thinking, okay, well, we're just drinking and, um, you know, it's no big deal if I'm a regular drinker or perhaps you just drink on occasion, but you drink kind of a lot during those occasions. What your book makes so clear is that biologically, naturally, the end game for any human organism is going to be a state of complete dependence or death if we follow it through to its logical, natural conclusion. And so I'd love for you yeah. to just expand on, you started to talk about tolerance, but then let's follow that through a bit.
1: Yeah, so the, I mean, it all goes back to what I was saying about homeostasis. And it, I mean, again, to put it at a very high level, what you're doing when you're drinking regularly your brain's squirting in an ever-increasing amount of these stress hormones and stimulates to counteract the alcohol, and you're drinking an ever-increasing amount of alcohol to counteract the stress hormones and stimulants, and it just gets progressively worse. Um, and it's the leftover stimulants and stress hormones that cause depression. Um, and obviously, you can go quite a lot into the neurology, but I mean, all you really need to do is to understand that it is very finely balanced the human brain, and the more you mess with it, the more problems you cause yourself. Um, And I think that's the how it works naturally. And I think that what we need to bear in mind is there's some additional things that you can draw from that. Firstly, is that the brain will get used to the amount you're drinking. Um, So if, for example, every evening at six o'clock you drink two bottles of wine throughout the evening, if you then get to a certain evening where you think to yourself, right, I'll try and moderate, I'll just have one glass, the brain is used to the alcohol in two bottles, not one glass. So you drink the one glass and the one glass, the alcohol going in actually just says to the brain, beware for a booze onslaught. So your brain reacts as if it's expecting the whole two bottles. So I think that's that, again, is one of the reasons why moderation becomes just impractical after a certain point, because you cannot just drink at a certain level every day and expect to reduce it. So what you're actually doing is making yourself worse off from the one drink has had you had none, because if you haven't had any alcohol, none is released into your system. But if you have one, that can then kick things off. Um, and I don't know if you found it, but I used to find it myself as well, when you you know, had a particularly bad hangover and you needed a drink to get through it, quite often a drink didn't do anything but make you feel worse. So you'd need to make sure you're going to have quite a few if you were going to start. Um, and I think that, again, that just exacerbates over time and it just becomes worse and worse that we can't stop when we start. Or in fact, if you do manage to stop, you're actually worse off mentally than if you hadn't had one because you may be slightly hungover, not feeling 100%, but it's better to be like that than have the stress hormones, everything kicking in at that point, so it kind of commits you, if you're drinking at a certain level, to maintain or increase that level.
0: So basically what you're saying is you have that one drink, you're like, tonight I'm going to moderate, I'm just going to have one glass of wine. Yes, I remember thinking that many, many times. You have that one glass of wine, and then because your brain is triggered to say, okay, all this booze is coming, it produces all this counter- stimulant stimulants you know all these adrenaline dynorphin all this stuff happens inside your brain this other glass of wine comes and you only get you get this much of the counter and you get this much alcohol whereas this would be homeostasis yeah, right and so then yeah. you say your brain is producing this much and all of a sudden here you feel horrible You feel on edge, jittery, nervous, uncomfortable. And so before that one glass, you actually probably felt okay. You probably had some sort of craving. If you're a regular drinker, it was mostly mental. All of a sudden with that one glass, you've kicked off this huge physical, biological, neurological reaction where you're feeling just awful. And so resisting that next glass is almost 10 times as hard as if you'd never had it in the first place.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's it. I think if you, that's the thing, if you can't resist the first one, you're not going to be able to resist the second one. You, you need to, it will be hard to understand in what circumstances you could, because if you said to yourself, I'll allow myself a glass of wine, you're stressed or whatever from the day, you're going to be more stressed and need more need of a glass of wine after the first one. So absolutely.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about is you make a great definition. And I, I get this, This I was a regular drinker, so I wasn't a binge drinker. And I get this question a lot, is like, you know, what about the binge drinker? You talk a lot, Annie, about people who go day by day by day, but what about the binge drinker? Um, so could you give us an overview of the binge drinker versus kind of the regular drinker and how their two journeys sort of counter, you know, contract? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, because I was a binge drinker, so I can give you my personal account. But so what would happen to me when it got two weeks most? Because I was a weekend drinker. Well, I was a, initially a social drinker, but that equated to a weekend drinker. And the weekend drinker became—it um, didn't matter whether, whether I was socialising or not. I would drink at the weekend. That was my reward for my days at work. So how it would normally work is so Friday, or even Thursday evening, but Friday lunchtime or whenever I start drinking. Um, So the alcohol would then start kicking in and I think the process for the binge drinker it tends to be um, a much more, in a way it's a quicker process because one of the key things I think with alcoholism is the state of alcoholism is when you instinctively and consciously know that a drink will take away the after effects of the previous drinking. Now that's not just waking up the next day feeling rubbish and knowing a drink will help but it's during the drinking session as well that we just touched on. So if you have a drink and the stimulants kick in and then start to leave, you instinctively know to take another drink. counteracting that. So you're saying that, just
0: to be instinctively is um, it's not just a feeling at that point. It is an instinct. It is your brain and almost your, your evolutionary uh, because I know that nothing can stop almost an alcoholic, a a true, you know, chemically dependent person from going for that next drink. It's it's very, very, very Mm -hmm. difficult to stop that cycle. And so in your brain, it's almost become an instinct. The instinct is saying, this is the thing that will make you feel better. And you know that consciously, and you know that subconsciously or instinctually and and that's obviously at the very very far end of of the progression but that's kind of what you're saying there and that's where this all is headed ultimately
1: yeah exactly I think I think how we start out alcohol being a poison in its purest form it does not taste nice and when we first start drinking we don't like it so that is our instinct so when we have a drink we instinctively don't like it and of course, When you first start drinking, if you wake up with a shocking hangover, you can't drink the next day. It makes you feel physically sick. If you were to smell alcohol, it would turn your stomach. But over the years, we get to situations where we don't feel 100% from alcohol from the previous day, but we end up drinking the following day anyway. And then what we start to learn on a subconscious and conscious level is that it might taste horrible and make us feel sick, but if we can actually drink some, we start to feel better. And then you're sort of making the building blocks, and obviously we know where the story ends, but as you say, the, the end game is to know that the ill effects of every drink can be relieved by more drinking.
0: Okay, so back to the binge drinker. So the binge drinker is, go ahead, I'll stop interrupting. Okay, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, um, did you mean the actual process or the sort of the day to day when you're at the, do you, I mean, do you want me to talk through what my life was like? As oh, a binge sure, yeah, and, and the actual the... process.
0: What yeah. I was fascinated by is that, so... yes, there's similarities, but let's talk about, you know, the process and, and and especially the differences between kind of somebody who regularly drinks and somebody who who binge drinks?
1: I think the main one of the main things for me is because I, as I, said, I was a weekend drinker and I didn't drink during the week I think one of the main differences is you just don't accept that you've got a problem because you stop I, right. I, I think there's probably four or five occasions in my entire life where I ever drank for more than a week I would always take breaks in between And I think then it's almost easier to justify when things get completely out of hand and you are literally from Friday lunchtime, you're not drawing sober breath until you're going back into work on Monday or even Tuesday if you can't make it in on Monday. But you never accept that you've got a problem um, because you stop in between. Um, But I think all you're really doing is constantly going through the withdrawal process and it makes stopping long term easier because the physical thing that you have to go through to actually stop is something you go through all the time anyway so I think in some ways for the regular drinker that initial stage can be a bit harder because they might not have gone through a full 48 hour withdrawal for however many years they've been drinking for whereas for the binge drinker they stop for however many days during the week or certainly I did before starting again so it makes that aspect but in terms of the actual process of drinking as i say the main point of it is i think you do end up getting to the stage basically where you know that a drink will rectify the condition caused by the previous drinks but and i think you mentioned it as um i think you said guide rails rails, guardrails where you you just have a fixing about not drinking in those situations and i think that's true for a lot of people it certainly was for me in that i would sometimes ring in sick on a monday and drink through the day But I did have this thing I would at some point have to go back to work. So by the skin of my teeth, I managed not to get sacked and I managed to get in and eventually managed to stop drinking anyway. So it was no longer an issue. Um, But I think the problem is when you're binge drinking, you lose the guardrails because as I say, I was drinking in the night if I woke up and couldn't get back to sleep. If it was a Saturday morning and I wake up with a hangover, I'd drink it was the weekend, and that's what I could do because I'd worked hard all week so I could drink at the weekend and the same with a Sunday. Um, and I think that's how that kind of fell into place.
0: I think that's really interesting because often those, I call them guardrails, but just these ideas of that's not somebody who I'm gonna be um, is, is really interesting because we have those for me it was kind of hard alcohol in the morning that was a big moment for me when i woke up and i felt so bad that i drank hard alcohol in the morning and um for some people it's drinking every day you know and that's their guardrail like i don't want to be somebody who drinks every day you know other people there's other things but um if those are the things that kind of wake us up to, okay, there's something wrong here. And, and I think that's where really the cognitive dissonance is introduced is because when we start to question our drinking, it becomes this very deep internal dialogue about our own behavior. And, and that dialogue itself causes significant pain. And as drinkers, we dull pain with alcohol. So then it kind of really is the moment that things can kind of go south, if you will. Um, but yeah. then also, I think there's a moment where things go south Uh, you know, biologically, which you explained very well. And and we've talked about briefly, but just to further expand on that, it is the moment where I think you say in your book, the, um, the subconscious is always getting this message. And then all of a sudden you consciously also know that alcohol is going to relieve the last drink. So could you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the subconscious, um, when I talk about it is the, um, it's a way that the brain, um, if you repeat the same action and it seemingly has benefits, it becomes automated. Um, and the, sort of the easiest example, if people drive, is to think if you're in the car as a passenger and the person who's driving leaves the braking too late, your braking foot is constantly tensing. Um, so there's no logical reason for that because there's no brake on the driving well, on the passenger side of a car. Um, And it's not something we're born with. That's not an instinct. Babies in a car won't be tensing their left foot if they see a vehicle heading towards them or anything. So it's something we learn and it's just learned over time. So as far as the subconscious is concerned, the withdrawal from alcohol is that excess stimulant that leaves us feeling anxious and nervous, but that's almost identical to the stresses and strains of life generally. So every time we reach for an alcoholic drink, our subconscious is picking up the message that it will relieve stress and anxiety. And obviously the longer that goes on for, the more deeply ingrained into the subconscious it becomes until eventually every time you have any stress or anxiety, you're reaching for a drink. And it might be that that happens first thing in the morning or while you're at work and your guardrails might be such that you never actually reach for it, but the thoughts there and then you're looking forward to it for when you get home from work or whatever um so that the subconscious sort of picks up on things that way.
0: Yeah, that's really that interesting. Makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I find it just fascinating because we develop this habit, but then the habit becomes almost um, you know, indistinctual as we we're talking about. And and when that happens, like we're we're headed for a world of hurt, so to speak. Um and then, you know, one of the other things, and we touched on it briefly, but just that when you're drinking, whether it's binge drinking or regular drinking, and in regular drinking, I think it happens at a much more subtle level. So if you're regularly drinking a beer a night, and then maybe the next over the next 12 months, your tolerance increases to where it's two, and then it's three, and then you know all of a sudden it's more and more. It's this much more subtle level that you're not actually experiencing um, that intense. Withdraw because you're never going more than, say, 12 hours without alcohol, you know. And so, and even if that, yeah. right, so if you wake up, <clears throat> it, it's not all that long. And so um I guess th- the question is, in both of those scenarios, if you don't sort of stop, and if something hasn't triggered your guardrails, so to speak. So I know there was a study where, you know, mice became addicted to, to an addictive substance. And without any kind of cultural guardrails or any spouse telling them, well, wait, your behavior's out of line. They just just ended up dying. They just ended up doing enough of it where they would kill themselves. And so that's the same for humans, is it not?
1: Yeah, I think so. That's exactly right, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think you mentioned it in your book as well, it's just that constant you're just constantly igniting the brain and the pleasure centres to such an extent that they become entirely numbed, but you just keep banging away at it, don't you? Um, and it, that's, I think that's exactly right. The pleasure is diminished, but the trigger to do it is still there. It's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah.
0: And then, um, so as that progresses, is it just certain people? And I I'm leading you here because I'm. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, the age of question, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I've said before. I think if you could show me a human being who could drink alcohol for ten years and not be capable of drinking any more alcohol than they drank on day one, as they drink after the tenth year, then I could believe that that is a person who has no predisposition to become alcoholic. But apart from that. If your brain, if you can drink more than you did previously, the reason for that is that your brain is creating stimulants to counter it, and that is what the physical withdrawal is. You have a physical withdrawal, you can become addicted to it. And it's as simple as that. So yeah, I completely agree. I think the the disease theory, and I think you 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 cover it exactly in your book as well, but the reason it is there is because it for many years it gave people a protection, it was their hold their sole reason for not drinking right. because they would develop an alcohol problem they become alcoholic and they would look around at all the other people in the world that supposedly can take it or leave it and they'd be keep thinking well why can't i do that to go back to it and of course they can't so they become unstuck and they start again so the only thing that stops them drinking is the thought that they are different they are an alcoholic that is the one thing that stops them um but of course, we know that there are other reasons why you can go back to how you were drinking previously, but it's not that you're chemically different from anyone else. So it's absolutely, yeah, absolutely, I agree, you cannot, as I say, everyone has a predisposition to alcohol. The only person, theoretically, that wouldn't have a predisposition to alcohol is someone that could never build up a tolerance. Um, I don't think anybody can prove a negative, but I don't think a person could exist. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons as well, sometimes when you get, because um, I've been following like on Facebook and you do sometimes get some fairly strong opinions on there. And I think a lot of it comes from, for a lot of people, their sobriety is based on that concept of a, a chemical, you know, an alcoholic that is the thing that keeps them sober. That is their one step. And that's why I think and it's, that's why they become very animated. When you start saying there's no such thing as an alcoholic as, would we, as generally accepted by society, because you're actually rocking their entire world, their sobriety, their life, their relationship, their job. Everything is hinged on that one point.
0: Of them um, identifying with the term.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's their, that is their protection. It's that having that next drink, that one drink. So.
0: And I think that when you understand how miserable it must be to drink yourself to the point of physical sickness and physical nausea or unconsciousness and then to wake up and feel so horrible that you drink the very thing that just made you physically ill... And you do that for days and days and days on end and the pure hell that must exist inside a human when their instinctual thing to get them out of the misery they're in is to go right back to the thing causing the misery and they have no way to see their way out of that cycle. Of course, there's going to be this huge level of fear if there's any indication that they that boat is rocked. So if they've found that rock, that, that identification with the term alcoholic, and that's what they're clinging to, to maintain distance from that misery of alcoholism, of course there's gonna be, so I have so much compassion for that actually, because you know it, it has to probably be one of the worst experiences a human being can go through to be deeply addicted to a substance. I mean, it is misery defined. I don't think there's anything worse.
1: No, it's very, a it's, it's very unpleasant situation to be in. And it is, yeah, it's understandable when that is their one guard against what they see as going right back to how they were originally. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, William, we have time for one more question. I could probably talk to you all day long because this is fascinating. But um, the the next question I want to ask is you talk about I love this when you talk about how somebody could not physically drink enough water to make them sick, uh, but, but we can drink enough alcohol to make, why is this, why does this happen?
1: That um, It's to do with, again, just the anesthetizing effects of alcohol and it, it just, it, it eventually dampens down the gag reflex um, and the physical sickness. And again, it goes back to what you were saying just now about someone who can wake up feeling that dreadful and ill, but of course alcohol is an anesthetic, so it dampens down the sickness. So this, that's how it works at one level. Because when we're actually drinking, the reflex to throw up a poison is dampened down slightly. Um, but the other thing is alcohol, and you mentioned it in this naked mind, but to get rid of it from the human body, the it has to be broken down into really even more toxic substance than alcohol. Um, so that takes a few hours to take place. So that's also why we're generally in the few hours after drinking than we are actually at the time. Um, but I think it just goes to show, really, there's, it's an incredibly confusing subject, but most of it you can sort of explain and articulate if you understand it, and it starts to sort of fall into place a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That
1: big... mm. So...
0: Alcohol actually can numb your gag reflex. So unlike water or if you were to drink so much soda that you were going to get sick on it or something, you would feel so ill, but alcohol actually numbs your gag reflex, which is why often you're not sick until the next morning and the hangover comes the next day. So you feel absolutely miserable the next day and nauseous all day long. But during the drinking binge, when the alcohol was like at its prevalence, you were relatively okay.
1: Yeah, well, that's the, that's the strange thing with alcohol, because it's it's a poison, but also an anesthetic. So you're taking something to make you ill, but you're also anesthetizing that feeling. But of course, the problem is, is when that anesthetizing effect wears off, you've still got the sickness hanging on afterwards. So it outlives it, unfortunately. So yeah, absolutely.
0: And I know it goes without saying, but man, the fact that we regularly in our society drink a poison to levels that makes us physically sick the entire next day and then brag about that sickness. <laughs> and yeah. I was there, raised my hand, someone who said, Oh, I'm so hungover. Oh gosh, badge of honor, right? And and I'm here anyway at work doing this presentation, so hungover. Good for me. Look what a superstar I am. Wow. It, 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 unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. When when the scales have fallen and you see things how they really are and it's just unreal that we drink something that makes us sick and then brag about the sickness.
1: And it's, well, and as you say as well, that you, it's, uh, you have to justify not taking it. You get all kinds of strange intrusive questions if you're not drinking. Right, so deep, I, I don't
0: want to poison myself. So, what, what? <laughs> it's so funny. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's unbelievable! Well, this has been just like a, a true pleasure. I mean, I've really enjoyed it, and I hope to have you back because I feel like we could cover so much more. There certainly isn't enough time, but um, yeah. So, where can people find you, William?
1: Um, the internet sites are the place to start, which is www.alcoholexplained.com, um, and there's all sorts of bits and pieces on there. The first five chapters of the book and a few articles and bits and pieces um and the book's available on amazon so it's fairly easy to find if you're interested
0: and again i mean readers have recommended this book to me who've read my book and just said look the two of these books together have been the thing for me, the ticket. And I think if you want to know more about like the biology, the science, the actual physical reactions to alcohol, William's book is just phenomenal. So I highly recommend it. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you. Annie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.